throughout our series in Ecclesiastes, we have considered for this last couple of months how we truly have full lives. We've considered how we have refrigerators that are full and closets that are full and schedules that are full and yet oftentimes at the end of the day we find ourselves empty. And Ecclesiastes is a book that just keeps it real. It's honest, sometimes brutally honest. It's, it's raw. It describes how every one of us longs deep inside to be satisfied in this world that is broken, the author, inspired by God's Spirit, Solomon, cries out that it's all vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And with this longing to be satisfied, we, we try our best to find meaning under the sun. And a lot of people just try to just stay busy. And they stay busy with their family, with school, career, or even ministry. You're just busy, busy. Or others, they want distractions and they just use things like social media or hours of mind-numbing TV or sports, leisure, entertainment, vacationing. And all these things just start to just distract us from the fact that there is deep pain going on inside and disappointment. And others try to numb themselves from the disappointment in life with things like food or immorality, pornography, or a thousand other different ways that we can numb our souls. And if we are honest with ourselves, like Ecclesiastes calls us to be, this world, this life can sometimes be really unfair and very painful. And in a humorous way, a comic strip called Covenant Hobbes really explores and talks about some of the same truths that you see in Ecclesiastes. If you're not familiar with that comic strip, Calvin is a six-year-old little boy, kind of mischievous, and he has his stuffed tiger, Hobbes, that comes alive in his imagination, and they, they talk, and it's usually pretty humorous. But the author, Watterson, oftentimes explores some of the same themes that you see in Ecclesiastes in his comic strip. There's this one in particular where, where Calvin finds a, a baby, sick, and dying raccoon. And so he calls his mom and they put him in a box and take him home and are trying to take care of this, this baby raccoon that is dying. And let's pick it up there and let's actually read the rest of the comic strip. It says, Dad, did you check on the little raccoon this morning? Yes, Calvin, I'm afraid he died. Wah! Calvin says, that says, I'm sorry too, kiddo, but he didn't have much of a chance. Wah! And dad says, well, at least he died warm and safe, Calvin. We did all we could, but now he's gone. And Calvin sniffing, I know, I'm crying because out there he's gone, but he's not gone inside of me. So you see Calvin talking to Hobbes now. This is where dad buried the little raccoon. I didn't even know he existed a few days ago, and now he's gone forever. It's like I found him for no reason. I had to say goodbye as soon as I said hello. Still, in this sad, awful, terrible way, I'm happy I met him as he sniffs. And in this last screen, him walking away with 
with Hobbes, he says, what a stupid world. And in, in a very comical way, Waterstein is conveying something that many of us feel. This is a very common response to pain and disappointment. He just says, stupid world, stupid universe. And coming to his realization that we live in a broken world like, like little Calvin is realizing that this world is broken and death is real, it can lead to depression or despair. Life can seem pointless. You're born, you live, you struggle, and you die. And we live in a world where there are real people, and you know them. Maybe you're sitting in this room today, and you can relate to this. Real people that are in real pain. And maybe you don't have the courage to say it out loud, but deep inside, you, like many others, feel that emptiness. And again, this great theologian, Calvin Hobbes, offer great insight in a humorous way. Let me show you a second one that a little bit shorter, but it conveys the same thing. You have them talking. I don't understand this business about death, says Calvin. If we're just going to die, what's the point of living? And so you see Calvin and Hobbes' blank stares, pondering, pontificating this grand question of what's the point of living if we're going to die. And then there, there's Hobbes. Well, there's seafood. And they come, I don't know why I even talked to you before dinner. So what you're seeing again here is this question of, well, what's the point? Well, there's, there's good food, so we have to turn to something to give us a sense of joy and comfort and relief to cope with the realities of life. It's so true. But here's the truth. Here's the reality is that you and I were not created to live empty lives. We weren't made for that. We weren't made to say, well, there's seafood. We weren't made for that. You and I were, were not created to try to find meaning for ourselves through our possessions or through our pursuits or even through other people. We weren't made for that. You see, God alone is self-sufficient. God alone is sovereign and completely independent. Only God is like that. Only God has complete and absolute freedom. See, we as humans are created, not creator. Therefore, as humans, we are dependent. We are not independent. And we try to, and we shake our fists at God and say, I want freedom to do whatever I want, however I want to do it, whenever, as often as I want. And we want independence from God, and it's not possible because we were created dependent. We were created to be reliant. We must depend on Him. You and I were created for, we exist for God. You exist for the pleasure of of God. And if you don't like that, deal. You don't get to define your purpose. 
You have free will and you can make some decisions in your life, no doubt. But you do not get to define your reason for existing. God, the creator who designed you, he chose that. And you and I were created for him. We exist for the glory of God. And it's when we are living out that design, that purpose, is when we find It's the only way. See, God made you to worship him. And when we do, our life just comes alive and we're filled with joy and meaning and hope. Nothing satisfies under this sun, not even seafood. Nothing satisfies under the sun because you were made for you were ultimately made to know Jesus and to make him known. So we, in our sin, are broken and we are desperate for Jesus. And the message of Ecclesiastes is that life is meaningless without Jesus. And we praise God that he uses our disappointments in our life, our pain, our frustrations, he uses that to drive us closer to Jesus because he wants us to experience life the way he designed it. So as we continue in our series, we left off last week when my elders Cole preached and he left off Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 9. Today, we pick it up with verse 10. So Ecclesiastes 6, we'll read verses 10 through 12. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man? For he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? This is a very important paragraph that transitions into chapters 7 through 11 in the book of Ecclesiastes. It says that God is the one here who has named all things. In the Bible, he who has the power to name has authority. So a parent names the child. Well, the parent has authority. Adam, in the Garden of Eden, he had the authority having dominion, the ruler under God's authority, but being the king over the earth, Adam named the animals because he was given dominion. He was giving ruling authority over the created order. And so when, when you see here God has named everything, that means that God is sovereign. God has authority. He is ruling over the whole created order because he is the creator. And so for us to argue, it says with many words comes foolishness. So when we try to argue against God's design for us, it's foolish. It's foolish to try to argue against God and his design and his authority. So after confessing that God is the king, the ultimate sovereign, now Solomon asks two questions. He says, well, who knows what is good for us? How are we supposed to know what's best for us? And then he asked him too, he says, and who can tell what will happen to us in the future? 
So he's asking these two questions, and of course it's rhetorical because the answer is God. Only God knows what is ultimate good, and only God knows what will happen tomorrow. And so our call is to trust him, to rest in his sovereign good control over the entire world and our lives. We trust him for today, for tomorrow, but even with our eternity. And so these two questions revolving around God who knows all is describing the wisdom of God. And so it sets the theme for the rest of the the next five chapters, because Ecclesiastes 7 through 11 is describing wisdom and how God is the fountain of wisdom. The wisdom of God is connected to his sovereignty. They go hand in hand because God is all wise and all powerful, all wise and in complete control. And so God is, as the sovereign, he is ruling all things but he rules all things with all wisdom. And so they go together. So our job is to respond to an all-wise, all-powerful, good God by depending on him, by for real, not just saying it, but with our souls resting and trusting in him and not freaking out, trusting him. Our job is to stop resisting his authority to stop doubting his wisdom and his perfect timing for things and stop trying to figure out what's going to happen tomorrow, but just trust him for tomorrow and stop trying to control by looking for meaning apart from him. So in a word, our job is to trust. So this means surrender. This means not relying on your own reasoning or human logic, but rather it's depending upon the revelation of God. And so you don't approach God with your own reason. You approach God because he has revealed himself. We know who he is through his word. So then his word is the authority for our lives and this church. He is the authority. And so we submit ourselves to him. We surrender to him. And so knowing Jesus becomes our everything, and it governs all of our thoughts, desires, decisions. Everything is about glorifying him who is all-wise and all-powerful. So we're seeing that the only way to live a life that is really filled with joy and meaning and purpose is the wisdom of And so chapter 7 begins, the first 10 verses, it's very poetic, and it's contrasting wisdom and foolishness. So if you read that, we won't this morning, don't have enough time, but 7, 1 through 10 describes how receiving correction from a wise person is better than being flattered by a fool. And it describes how we ought not be deceived by the love of money to the point of committing evil, such as bribery. It calls us to be patient instead of prideful. It calls us to be kind instead of angry. This is all wisdom that it describes. And he says, don't live your life thinking about the good old days in the past without looking forward to what's coming. So that's what you see in those 10 verses. Let's read verses 11 and 12. Again, chapter 7. 
Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is the wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. What you're seeing here briefly is that wisdom protects us. It protects us from what? From being dumb. From doing things that are just foolish that would end up hurting us or other people. It says the wisdom preserves life. And so wisdom is this a life-giving reality. And then verses 13 through 29, to close off chapter 7, it reveals more of our desperate need for the wisdom of God in our broken world. Let's read a sampling of that in verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? So the word crooked here does not mean morally corrupt or evil. It doesn't mean that. It it, it means bent, but it has this connotation of being unknowable. And so who can understand, who, who can totally make sense, make straight that which is unknowable? And so we can't fully know what God is doing. We don't, we don't have his supreme insight or understanding. And so bad things can happen, and we don't always understand why. We can't always discern why God allows things to happen the way that they do. We don't know why bad things happen. And oftentimes there's no answer for that question. But we do know this, that God's character is good and he is wise and he is powerful. And so we can trust him that he will use that pain to display his glory and for your good. And so we can honestly trust him even in the deepest of pain, knowing that we don't know what he's doing, but we can trust him. We are desperate for the wisdom of God, but because of our sinful hearts, we, we tend to resist and reject it and want to go our own way and figure things out on our own with our own power and our own wisdom. Verses 19 through 20 in this same chapter gives us an insight into that. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man when the ten rulers who are in the city. So it says that wisdom is good and it gives strength. But then verse 20 Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And then verse 29, finish this chapter. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So you see here that wisdom from God is a good thing and it's a blessing, and yet we are sinful. And God made humanity originally good. It says he made man upright. He made us originally good with no sin, no brokenness, no emptiness. But we have inherited a sinful nature from our father, Adam. But we continue to sin. And so we sin by nature and also by choice. We like it. We enjoy sinning. If we're honest with ourselves, we do but it pushes us far from God. But we all do this. We're all sinners. And then chapter 8, the whole chapter describes our need still, same theme of wisdom, describes how we're desperate for the wisdom of God in this fallen world. Because it's broken, and we go by our own thoughts, our own wisdom, then it paints this very bleak picture 
of politics and people. It describes a king in the first part of chapter 8 who uses his power to oppress and to hurt other people. And I know that this time of year, especially, it, it amazes me how the whole world is just captivated by the United States election. And I can't get my mind around that because it's just one country. And it is what it is. It's a flawed country with a, a flawed president. But the reality is that we can complain about our leaders or we can praise our leaders. But every world leader is flawed, whoever he is. And lest we complain too harshly about our world leaders, we're just as flawed as they are. And if we have their position of authority, we may actually be worse than they are. We don't know. We're all sinners. And so you see here in chapter 8 that this king is oppressive and hurting people. But then verses 10 through 13 describe that those that the subjects are no better. They're equally corrupted. They, they do sin just as much as, as the king does. And so a sampling of that, are we just the second part of verse 11, again, chapter 8, history on the screen. It says, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. It's not just presidents and rulers and dictators and kings. It is all of us, every one of us, the children of man. Our heart is set to do evil evil. And we can try to deny it. We can try. But if we're honest with ourselves, we know that God's word is speaking truth and that our hearts are just drawn. It's like we're we're pulled constantly towards giving our hearts to idols, things that are evil. And we want to go our own way. We don't want the ways of God. We want what we according to our own selfish agenda. And the next chapter, chapter 9, the first six verses reveals that because of this corrupted, sinful nature and our rebellion against God, death is inevitable. We all will die. Now, God did not make us originally to die. He made us for life. God made Adam richly blessed him. He gave him life. He gave him a wife. He gave him good food. He gave him an eternal purpose. But above all of those blessings, God gave Adam himself. That's the greatest gift. See, Adam had the presence of God. And we were made to enjoy God forever. But enjoying God is the result of submitting to his authority. Hear me. You cannot enjoy God if you refuse to submit to his authority. And so God blessed Adam. Blessed him. Here's all these gifts. Here's your wife. Enjoy her. Here, food. Enjoy it. Enjoy your work. It's not going to feel like work. You'll love your job. Keep it in the garden. It's going to be awesome. It's going to rock. And I'm right here with you. It's heaven. It's paradise. And it says, but there's this tree of knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. Don't eat that tree. Everything else is yours. You're the ruler. But submit to my authority and do not eat of this one tree. Respect me in our relationship. Submit 
to my authority and doing the eat of this tree. What did Adam do? He rebelled. And he knew the consequences. God told him, for on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. When Adam rebelled, just like all of us do, we now suffer the penalty for our sin, our rebellion, which is death. And God must uphold justice. If God does not condemn us for our sin, then he is not a holy God. Yes, God is love, but he is also holy. He must uphold justice. And verse 3, again, chapter 9, describes this vividly. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. You think, man, that is just a downer verse. Why are you, why are you preaching out of it? Because it's in the Bible. And we need this for our souls. This verse is summarizing the whole book of Ecclesiastes. It's describing life apart from God. How life is meaningless without God. This is describing a human life when someone does not know Jesus, when they reject him and are living according to their own wisdom. If you are not trusting in Jesus, this verse describes you. This is all you've got. You're born. Your life is full of evil, it says. You pursue meaning your own way, which he calls madness, and then you die. That's what you got. This is the Bible. This is life without Jesus. And then you're going to be resurrected bodily to face a holy God. I shudder at the thought to stand there with no advocate, to stand there based upon your own righteousness before a holy God. This is a very brief overview of three chapters in Ecclesiastes from 6, 10 through 9, 6. But let's think about what this means for you and me today. So we can get our minds around this and how we can apply this and live for Jesus. The main idea, so here's the primary truth that we just overviewed. The main idea of this text is that the wisdom of God is the only way to truly enjoy life in this broken world. This is it. The wisdom of God is the only way to truly enjoy life in this broken world. It's the only way. It's God's wisdom. Now, why? Why does God's wisdom lead us to truly enjoy life? Let me give you three truths here pretty briefly. But three truths about the meaning of wisdom. Number one. Wisdom means knowing God. And so wisdom means knowing God. So the, the, the call for wisdom in Ecclesiastes to be wise is a call to recognize that God has a design for everything. Everything in creation has a purpose and is made by the designer, and that includes you and me. We live lives, well, when, I should say, we live lives according to God's design and his purpose, then we're filled with joy and meaning. But the wisdom of Ecclesiastes also reveals that sin 
leads to brokenness and meaninglessness. So yes, everything has design and purpose, but because of sin, it leads to being broken and meaningless. When something is broken, it means it doesn't work right. So if it's broken, it doesn't work. Now, if, if you know my family, I have, I have twin two-year-olds. They're a blast. They're very active and full of life. And we're from Texas, and so we like guns. So we, we play with guns at home. I mean, they're toy guns with darts and discs, but they're awesome. Well, we, we have a house rule, no headshots. So when, when we shoot each other around the house, we, we don't shoot the head like that. But everything else is open, fair game, you know, arms, legs, you know, torso is good. Um, hey, I'm from Texas. I'm keeping it real. All right. So, so when, when we're home and we're shooting each other with the guns and two-year-olds running around, I have my gun, daddy, I got you. And, oh, you got me. But sometimes, like, the gun will jam, and then, and then the dart gets stuck, and it doesn't work properly. So my son, Nathaniel, who's very verbal, like his dad, he'll run, daddy, daddy, it's broken. Gun is broken. Like, he's, like, freaking out that his gun is broken. Like, it's okay, I can fix it. It's just jammed, and we'll fix it, and then we'll, we'll go back shooting each other. So this gun has a design to emit darts so that father and son have a great time together. That's its purpose, designed to do something. When it's broken, it is failing to accomplish its purpose. When it's broken, it is not accomplishing that which the designer intended it to do. You see, you have a designer, and you were made with a purpose, and your purpose is to know God and to enjoy Him forever. To have your soul satisfied with Jesus. You're made to know Him and to go make Him known. And only that will satisfy, and that is your purpose. But here's the problem. You're broken. So you don't work right. And you don't. You don't always enjoy Jesus. You don't always worship him. You will now turn to idols because we're broken. And thus we're not fulfilling our intended purpose and design. And in our brokenness, we can sometimes blame other people and say, well, he abused me or I've had this hard situation. And sometimes that's true. Let's just be honest. There are sometimes that we struggle with brokenness, and it's because of other people that have hurt us. But sometimes it's our own foolishness. We have to be honest. Like, this is on me. This is my fault. I was foolish, and I deserve these consequences. But then there's times when it's no one's fault. There's no one to blame. Natural disasters happen. Economies tank. Sickness, disease, there's no finger to point. It's a fallen world. So whatever the cause of your pain and disappointment, at the root of it, it's sin. God has a design, but because of sin, there's brokenness and meaninglessness. And whether it's directly or indirectly, it's all because of sin. Ecclesiastes points to the fact that apart from Jesus, there's no hope. We are sinful and broken and we're hurt. 
so this brokenness hurts. There's real pain, and we can try to fix ourselves. We want to mend ourselves to fill the void with things like drink and other relationships, making lots of money and trying to be successful or whatever, but it won't satisfy. Trying to fix yourself only leads to more pain. It does. And so the gospel is the solution for our brokenness. Through Jesus alone, he made a way. See, Jesus is the designer of all of creation, but he is also the one who came in, entered into creation, and fulfilled that design. And since we could not go up to reach the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God came down and reached down to See, the wisdom of God is not head knowledge. It's not information. It's not biblical knowledge. It's not. Wisdom is personally knowing, experientially. True wisdom is only possible if you know See, wisdom ultimately, at its, at its essence, wisdom is not a thing, not an idea. It's not a concept. Wisdom is a person. See, we read earlier, our brother Joseph read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, describing the wisdom and power of God. And it says in verse 24 that Jesus is the wisdom of God. He embodies it. He is wisdom. And so the wisdom of God is knowing him personally. And Jesus made this possible. He paid the price on the cross. Jesus suffered in order to end our suffering. He died that death so that he could end the chaos of this world. Paid the price for you and for me. Wisdom means knowing God. Not about God. Knowing Him. We are fools, if we're honest. We're so foolish. Without Jesus, we have no hope. But with Him, we can walk in wisdom as His Spirit leads us. So wisdom, number one, means knowing God. Number two, wisdom means reflecting God means reflecting him. See, salvation is knowing God. But once a person repents of his sins, trusts in Jesus alone, his work on the cross, to save him or her, that person is born again. They're resurrected spiritually. They receive the Spirit of God. What was a heart of stone is changed to a heart of flesh spiritually. Their eyes are open. They have eyes of faith, and they see the stunning majesty and glory of Jesus, and then in this new life that God gives, we receive by faith, with this new life, we then begin to grow in wisdom. We grow in Christ. So the call in Ecclesiastes to be wise is a call to reflect the character of God. You see, these, these rules that you read in Ecclesiastes 7 through 9, they're not actually rules. This is wisdom. These are, these are not hard rules that a legalistic hard God is imposing on us. 
It's not like God is trying to be a cosmic killjoy. God is not out to stop your fun. He's not out to just curb your good time. He's not. God wants you to experience maximum joy and pleasure and freedom. But God also knows that he's the only true source of joy. And so God offers you the best. He offers you himself. So knowing God, being satisfied in him, experiencing his presence, you live a life then where you're going to reflect his character and your thoughts, desires, words, and actions. So anything else that you would turn to for ultimate meaning and purpose will enslave you. You will not be free. You think, I want to be free from God. No, that's not possible. You can either run from him and be enslaved by your idols or run to him and bow the knee and your heart gladly, joyfully, and then you will experience freedom. Free to accomplish your purpose of knowing and enjoying God forever. In your frustration with life, do not run to things under the sun because it will leave you empty and more broken and with more longing. Allow that frustration, disappointment to propel you, to drive you closer to Jesus. He suffered. He knows suffering. He cares. He loves you. He enters into that with you. We're called to reflect his character, his glory. We need him. Do you want to grow in holiness and wisdom? If you do, draw near to the wisdom of God. Draw near to Jesus himself. Depend on him, and he will change you. Number three, as we wrap up, wisdom means enjoying God's gifts. So wisdom means knowing God, reflecting God, and enjoying his gifts. As we wrap up this passage, verses 7 through 10, very powerful. It says, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and your toil of which your toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought, or knowledge, or wisdom in shell to which you are going. Again, very bleak. He's describing the right of life without God. But what he's describing here is pointing to wisdom truly means enjoying the gifts of God. Here he tells us, enjoy good food. He says, enjoy nice clothes. He says, smell good. So wear perfume or cologne. It's good. Smell good. Smell nice. He says, enjoy your work. And he says, men, enjoy your wives. This is a command. We're told to have a vibrant, healthy, satisfying, meaningful, intimate relationship with your wife. And that's a long conversation on how you do that. But I'll just give you one phrase. If you want to enjoy your wife, you have to know your wife. Amen, ladies? 
Your wife wants to know that you get her, that you know her, that y'all are in tune, and that you're searching her mind, not just her body. You know her. I promise she'll respond and you will enjoy each other. We're told here to enjoy life. Enjoy it. But it's funny to me, I I notice a lot of believers sometimes think that following Jesus means that you can't enjoy anything in life. You can't have a nice car because if you do, people will think, oh, he's a bad steward. He's not tithing, I bet. Or if you get caught at a nice restaurant, they'll think, look at the pastor. He's spending all the money in restaurants and he's eating out. Or if you have a, a nice shirt or if you have a, a nice suit or a nice dress, people are going to judge you like, whoa, look at her. She's a Christian and she wears all these nice clothes. And we think, all your money, give it to missions. They should all go to India and Africa because that's missions, right? No, it's not. Missions is everywhere. We're all missionaries around the planet. You see, what happens to us is we think, Following Jesus means you have to deny yourself and be miserable for the glory of God, right? No, that's not what this is saying. What he is saying here is enjoy your life. Enjoy it. Enjoy the gifts that God has given to you. Now, we have to keep a balance here. We cannot love the gifts more than the giver of the gifts. We cannot make the gifts idols that we give ourselves to. But if your soul is satisfied in Jesus himself, a healthy soul that is filled with wisdom will be able to and is called to enjoy the gifts without being enslaved by them. You and I were made to enjoy life. Do you? I mean it. Are you enjoying your life? Amen. Are you living a life of wisdom that's marked by knowing God? A life of wisdom that's marked by reflecting God and enjoying Him and His gifts. We're called to. If not, if you're not living life like this, then I would call you to repent of whatever your heart has been given to that is keeping you from living this full life that God has for you and wants for you. Draw near to him. Jesus has overcome. We have hope beyond the grave. He will never fail you, never forsake you. Depend on him, and he will make us a wise people for his glory. Will you pray with me? Father, we praise you together. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have sent your son for us. I pray that you would help us to be a people that reflect your character by walking in wisdom as we walk with Jesus, who is your wisdom. Thank you for this church. I ask for your blessing that we would be a truly healthy, missional church that wants to make disciples for your glory, and that starts with our hearts before you. Thank you, Father, for hearing us today. Make us a holy people for you. We pray in the name of
of our King Jesus.